0: Welcome to the 250 your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co host Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew?
1: I'm always here, Darren. I'm always here for like the Baywatch theme. Yeah, <laughs> um, some people stay in the shadows, afraid to walk into the light. Um, don't you worry, everything's going to be all right, Darren, because I'll be there. I, I won't let you out of my sight. Do, 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 Thank do, you, do, do.
0: Andrew. That was <laughs> that was actually exactly what I needed to hear today. Of all days, I think. Good. Um, today is. Independence Day as we are releasing this and to celebrate Independence Day uh, we are discussing a very interesting very special movie from 1949. It is Raoul Walsh's uh, White Heat starring James Cagney and joining us for this discussion we have the wonderful Carl Sweeney from the Movie Palace podcast. How are you Carl?
2: Hey guys I'm doing good thank you. Yeah happy Independence Day. It's um,
0: I suppose (laughs) a gangster
2: film there's something quintessentially American about it so it's kind of a nice neat choice I think. This morning I,
1: I I woke up I I, I forgot that it was uh, Independence Day, mm-hmm. and of course I had to go to the shops and it, like everybody is trying to do their last minute Independence Day shopping and <laughs> it was it was just okay. a real yeah but I, I'm glad I'm glad that Darren texted me to remind me because um, of yeah. course we have our annual July Fourth podcast it's a very special podcast
0: today I mean. Did, didn't you get my Independence Day card? <laughs> I mean, people say Hallmark, just try and turn it into a holiday, but I, I I, think it's very important to remember this. Uh, but yes, Carl, when the pandemic happened, because we're obviously recording remotely at the moment, uh, we thought that one of the things we try and do is we try to engage with some of the people who are overseas, um, because, you know, if we're recording remotely, we figure that we might engage with kind of guests that we had on the past who are not necessarily capable of being in the same room, and so to whom that would maybe be an advantage. And we thought, like, of oh, people like last week, we had Kurt North on, a couple of weeks ago, we had Tony Black on. And we reached out to you as well because we wanted to, to cross over the movie Palace because we quite enjoyed our past couple of episodes crossing over with you. And we asked you what you would like to cover on the list, if there was one movie in particular that kind of jumped out at you. And we had a bit of back and forth about it, but you eventually settled on this one, um, which is Raul Walsh's 1949 kind of gangster film um, starring James Cagney. What was it about this film that kind of jumped out at you, that made it a film that you wanted to talk about?
2: Uh well I was mildly surprised to see why he on the two fifty actually. I was kinda of, I can't remember exactly where it is on the list, but I felt like I sc- scrolled a long way down before I, before I got to
0: it. It isn't actually on the list is the thing. It was it uh, entered the list at number two hundred and ten. Okay uh, and then dropped rather sharply. It left in mid April, early May. Um Boys But yes, it, so it was a surprise. Boys we've been swindled. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i've got a bad track record there because didn't the wizard of oz also drop off the list before we actually recorded our thing? yes so that's yes timing. let's um, get out of here
0: we call you carl voice of the people sweeney <laughs> um very in touch with the internet we database list but yes um but no we, we you said you wanted to do it and you know on our side there was a bit of a delay getting around to recording so we thought we would actually kind of talk about it but what was it that grabbed your attention about it in particular
2: Okay, well, I think it fits actually quite nicely with what I've been doing on the Movie Palace uh, recently, because um, you mentioned Tony Black there, and I was really pleased recently to talk with him about Bonnie and Clyde uh, for his new show, uh, The New Wave. Uh, in addition to that, I have recently uh, did an episode on The Public Enemy, the, James, the other famous James Cagney gangster film. Uh, that was from the early 30s. So I thought it'd be nice to do kind of a almost a mini-season of gangster films, and this one's an interesting one, I think, because it comes... Kind of between those two points, it's much earlier than, or it's a bit earlier than Bonnie and Clyde and that kind of late 60s, 70s resurgence of the gangster film. And it's kind of far removed from the sort of apex of the the genre in the early 30s. So I think, yeah, it's kind of nice to see a film that's in between those two kind of poles. And I think it's a really good film. I think it's really effective. I think it's really exciting. Um, I think, yeah, I just thought it'd be a nice one to chew over. So hopefully you guys uh, agree. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Is is this a late James Cagney one? Because I, I like turning this on. One of the things I um, thought first was, "Wow, James Cagney is hella old." Um, was was that always the case in 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 his movies, or is this like a later kind of career um, uh, 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 movie for him?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a bit later. He looks much older here than he does. Than, than when he became a star, I think, and but he went, he kept, he kept going for a long time, I think, into the eighties. So, oh wow, no, he, he gets more <laughs> from here. I gotta say. <laughs>
0: Uh, well this is kind of an interesting one in terms of that because you kind of mentioned the, the James yeah. Cagney role there and it's interesting you mentioned Public Enemies is obviously one of the films that kind of defined James Cagney defined the gangster genre as well he also did Angels with Dirty Faces in 1932 as well and uh, 1938 as well um, and basically he kind of had become associated with the genre in large part you might argue because you know he wasn't a conventionally attractive leading man and he had the kind of edge that people associate with the gangster genre and what's interesting is that around about 1939 he started to make a conscious break. Break uh, with the genre. He wanted to push away from doing gangster films. He also wanted to push away from Warner Brothers, uh, coincidentally, as well. Um, and this ends up being a homecoming in two respects there. Warner Brothers being a notoriously penny-pinching studio, uh, notoriously tough on their uh, talent during the studio age. There's famous stories about during the Second World War of Jack Warner wandering around and picking up stray nails yeah. so that he could sell them for iron, uh, which is one of those great <laughs> anecdotes yeah. that you'd hear. But apparently um, Cagney had huge difficulties working with Warners because he felt that he wasn't being properly remunerated for the work he was doing. During the late 30s, early 40s, he was one of the top 10 uh, box office draws in America but he was still being paid what he deemed to be, you know, minor trivial day payer rates. And in fact, he actually tried to branch out and go out on his own as well. Now, he won an Oscar, I think, for Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, in, was it 1942, mm-hmm. I believe, is when he won that. Um, and he then he also tried to branch out and do his own work separate from Warner Brothers, uh, producing himself, sort of pushing himself, trying to propel himself forward with his own studio. That didn't work. The, it wasn't a huge success creatively or commercially. I think it did a bit better uh, creatively and critically than did commercially but basically meant that he had to come back to the studio and so in 1949 he came back and he did this film which in some ways feels as you pointed out a bit like a late gangster film in terms of those kind of 1930s 1940s kind of films and it's weird watching it because you know in some ways not to jump too far ahead it does feel a bit uh kind of like a eulogy for the genre it feels a bit reflective a bit sort of uh grimmer a bit darker a bit more melancholy in places but carl had you seen this movie before were you familiar with white heat before yeah about- oh,
2: but it'd been quite some time and that's that was interesting in and of itself that the thing i remember about this film is cagney and it's interesting that sort of the screen time is balanced quite quite well with the other actors too but he's the thing i remember um, but yeah, it's interesting that you talk about it as kind of like a eulogy for the, the genre because, yeah, it is. It's kind of made at this weird time. The film was like really wide open, I think, like more wide open than it had been before. Like there were people doing lots of different things with gangster films, gangster narratives. But arguably, the genre has a bit less of like a stable identity than it would have when Cagney burst onto the scene, I think. Um, so I think White Heat's interesting, and I think this is another reason I, I thought it was a good one to talk about, is I think it's probably like the major gangster film of this era. And it's something of a hybrid, you know, it has that kind of briskness and the sort of clarity of the early sound films, the early 30s. It has Cagney, who's one of the great stars of that era. It's also like a very effective outlaw picture, which you sort of associate with sort of a few years after that. You know, that's more of a mid 30s onwards thing. Um, But it also has kind of a viciousness to it that seems to be sort of looking ahead to where the gangster genre is kind of going in the 50s and beyond, you know. Um, So it's a really interesting kind of amalgam in that sense, and as as a commercial entertainment, I think that was just very good indeed. I think it's memorable, I think it's exciting, I think it doesn't really flag, I don't know what you guys thought, um, but it's got that great star performance at the centre of it, of course, as well.
0: Yep. I think we're probably going to talk a bit more in the spoilers on about some of the stuff there, but I think it's interesting that you mentioned a genre hybrid because I mean I would go even further than that. It's obviously influenced by stuff like say film noir that's kind of coming down the line, big success out of the the Second World War. I'd argue that you even see traces of, and I know you're going to be talking about later in the summer about Psycho, but you can almost see kind of traces of that oh, yeah. in play as well. Where you there's, have...
1: e- there's even there's even a Psycho reference <laughs> <laughs> With, like <laughs> yeah. long before Psycho was made. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, We've had a couple of those. We've had a couple of movies that were like, "Is that a reference to Psycho?" Oh no, the movie was made several years before Psycho was, was actually released. Um, but it, it is kind of, it does kind of fit in that way. Watching it, it, it felt, it feels at time almost like a kind of a claustrophobic horror movie as well. There's elements of the Gothic in there and things like that. It's very, it's an interesting genre hybrid, a bit of a cocktail, I think, in terms of genre. So before we jump into the sport zone, uh, three questions that we're going to ask, and perhaps they're a bit weighted by the knowledge that this is not actually <laughs> 1950 at present. Yeah. Uh, but to kick us off, Carl. Do you think that White Heat belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made?
2: Well, I'd certainly put, a, put it above some of the stuff on the list. I'd definitely put this above Forrest Gump, for example. Um,
0: so what you're saying is it deserves to be the 13th best <laughs> movie of all time, right? I
2: don't know. It's kind of crazy to me what happens with the IMDb. Because I think last time we spoke, Darren, I think you told me that Jaws, is that right? Jaws dropped off? That was in
1: truly, truly insane. Yeah. Like... Uh,
2: but, so
0: <laughs> Jaws yep Jaws got it Jaws, Jaws went out in the purge
2: I think I think it's possible to make a strong case that this belongs on the top 250 yeah um I don't know exactly where I find it hard to do lists to be honest but yeah I think so
0: somewhere in the in the amalgam of kind of pictures yeah there. um and Andrew what about yourself
2: um I think
1: um Voltaire or Gottfried Leibniz someone like that was wrong when when they claimed that this is the best of all possible worlds because this movie should be on the list and yet it's not um and 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 that's wrong this this movie does belong to be on the on the the 250 um and and we're living in 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 one of the lesser worlds um in
0: it I love that this is what clued you in it's It's the fact that White heat is another list, nothing else that's happened yeah, in the world exactly.
1: that well there's no, there's no reason why it shouldn't be you know we We almost could could have ended up not talking about it um if if <laughs> if it hadn't been for our delays yeah. so, um, at, at least at least at least this world is better than the one where we never watched this movie and never talk about
0: it that, that's fair as well I think and i'm going to be our listeners
1: deserve it. <laughs>
0: They deserve our white hot takes, as it were. Um <laughs> that whole tight, there's gonna be a lot of those. This is interesting, because I'm I'm gonna be the dissenting voice here. I, to be absolutely clear and to jump ahead to the next two questions, I like this movie a lot. I really love this movie. I'm not sure I'd put it on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. I think maybe there is an argument for it in terms of it being akin to say what what Unforgiven was to the Western. This might be to, you know, the 1920s and 1930s gangsters films, perhaps. But it just feels a little bit too unfocused in terms of plotting and storytelling and narrative. It feels a little bit meandering. There's a lot of, and then plotting that goes on there. And it kind of, I like the pacing of it. I think the pacing of it's fantastic. I think that it moves really quickly, but there's a sense in which it kind of unravels in a way that I'm not sure would allow me to classify it as a truly great film. If that makes sense. I think that there are a lot of really great elements in there. I think Cagney's phenomenal. I think the movie's very clever yeah. Um, but I do think that there are bits that kind of hold it back. And some of that stuff is the fact that, as I mentioned, a lot of it feels a bit unstructured in places. There's also some of the stuff that I kind of associate with the film noir around the, the kind of the Hayes Code and the Breen office, which we'll probably talk about when we get to the spoiler zone. But things like the amount of attention this pays to things like the workings of radios, uh, which <sighs> did distract kind of slightly.
1: I really enjoyed that stuff. I thought that stuff was great. It It felt like... Because we talked about this being a um, a like a gangster movie or a a um, um, like a bad guys movie, it's also a, a very very much kind of like a police procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, like like parts uh, part, parts of it reminded me of like almost The Wire or things like that, where 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 it's very kind of like in the um, kind of like and and here's here's how the police work, and it's actually really clever.
2: Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, I think I know what you mean, Darren. I think like if we talk about the films, we've crossed over one before. We talked about Double Indemnity and we talked about The Wizard of Oz. I think the case for those films being included on the 250 is more watertight than the case for White Heat. So I, I know where you're coming from.
0: I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to yeah. seem like I'm being overly grouchy or mean. I really, really. really, really enjoyed this movie and love large parts of it. It's also worth mentioning, actually, I, I, I suppose we could wait until the spoiler zone, but just to give a kind of a sense before we jump in there, that stuff that Andrew mentioned about the kind of police procedural aspect of it, apparently, that came about as a result of Joseph Breen, the industry censor, complaining that the screenplay went, too far, went into far too much detail about the planning and execution of crimes, because real criminals watching the movie might find such information to be a practical use so the screenplay was then adjusted to ensure that the procedures that it was documenting were not of crimes and were in fact of the people who catch criminals and i kind of wonder you know surely that's just doesn't handy? that help
1: criminals too <laughs> <laughs>
0: Isn't that just as handy for criminals? Don't leave your buddy a pack of cigarettes not to jump too far ahead, for example.
2: I think that's um, kind of a long-standing concern with a gangster film, though. I think, um, you know, this idea that it contributes towards the curriculum of crime and teaches you how to break into safes and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's interesting. I think that's why, um, that's one reason why um, things like the Production Code Administration, sort of one of the things, kind of the factors bearing in on that was, concern about crime on screen so yeah i think it's interesting that you you said that
1: this is the, the the new deal kind of um america where like this this is this is good for police because it gives them lots of work to do <laughs> by giving criminals lots of ideas um and getting getting the you know economy back uh, going again um
0: the free market of crime, <laughs> just keeping it moving, keeping it liquid. In, in, in,
1: exactly. Yeah. You, you can't have a large uh, police force without sufficient crime. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just supply and demand. Yeah. Like. Um, It is worth noting as well, the film generated its own whiff of moral panic as well. There's a really great, great quote from Bosley Crother, who I think we've discussed quite a few times recently when talking about these classic films. He was a film critic for the New York uh, Times um, and was prone to occasional bouts of moralism. Um, So here is the opening paragraph of his review of White Heat, and it's glorious. Warner Brothers weren't kidding when they put the title White Heat on the new James Cagney picture, which came to the Strand yesterday. They might have gone several points higher in the verbal caloric scale and still have understated the thermal intensity of this film. For the simple fact is that Mr. Cagney has made his return to a gangster role in one of the most explosive pictures that he or anyone has ever played. If it is inviting information to the cohorts of thriller fans, whose eagerness this reviewer can readily understand, let us soberly warn that White Heat is also a cruelly vicious film and its impact upon the emotions of the unstable or impressionable is incalculable. (laughs)
2: That's good stuff, I mean, I know also that the Catholic Legion of Decency said that the film was objectionable in part because of the violence, but um, I get the sense that's that's not the worst they could have said, so you know
1: yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. you never can you, you never can guess what the Catholic League of Decency is going to. Nobody <laughs> expects the Catholic League of okay. decency uh, are, 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 are there are there three weapons um, decency. Yeah. Catholicism and uh, censorship um. <laughs> oh and devotion to the Pope the, the, the four um, <laughs> sorry the four tenets yeah. of
0: the Catholic League of Decency uh, welcome to the Catholic League of Decency podcast um, but yes and then second question Carl okay. um, would this be on your own personal 250 so your 250 favourite films so if you were pooling a list of classic cinema and you're only allowed 250 items would this be on there
2: I mean, the problem with answering that is, like, I really like films, you know, and like there are a lot of great <laughs> films I'd like to put on a list. So I think if White Heat got on there, and I'm not sure it would, uh, but it would probably be in the like kind of 200 to 250 range. Um, so maybe, maybe. I'm not, I'm not sure though.
0: Okay. And uh, Andrew.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, especially these days, like it gives it gives it gives people ideas of what to do, kind of you know when they're um, at home um like kind of stewing this it's it's a very um it's very topical movie because i mean not to spoil anything too much but there's a lot of cocooning <laughs> um and yeah um so yeah no no in 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 all seriousness though i will be planning crimes based on this movie and and i did <laughs> uh enjoy it quite a lot
0: um I also really, really enjoyed. Not sure it be on my own personal 250, but again, keep in mind I only—I'm almost ashamed to say—I only just watched it for this podcast. Um, so this is the f- first or sec- first and second time that I've watched the movie. Um, so I'm, you know, still acclimatizing to my thoughts on it as well. And then, final—I am twice
1: as ash- as ashamed as you are, Darren.
0: or or precisely one half. Yeah, I'm not sure how. We yeah, these yeah. Things.
1: But uh, I've only seen it once. <laughs> um, my my first, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and then, kind of, to bring us into this more zone, final question, Carl. Yep. If listeners have not seen White Heat, so if they haven't had a chance to watch it yet, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, stay indoors, possibly with their wife, mother, some associates of various <laughs> reputes <laughs> yeah. uh, and watch this uh, on stream this to their stay television.
1: In- Stay
2: alert, isn't that the yeah. thing now? Well, sorry, this is going to age the, the podcast. Yeah. I mean... What, it's July 4th, I, I would certainly... Sorry. Yeah, happy Independence Day. Um, I would certainly <laughs> recommend people do that. I mean, what have they got to lose, Darren? You know, I think that uh, even the most lukewarm of us, which is you, you know, seem to have enjoyed this a lot. So, <laughs> <I>
0: think... <laughs> Shots fired. Um... <laughs> so, no, I, th-
2: I think it's a really good entertainment, to be honest. So I think, yeah, I think it's a nice distraction from other matters
0: and andrew yeah
1: absolutely absolutely like i i i wasn't um i wasn't aware of this movie funnily enough i was exposed to this movie last weekend and didn't uh, realize it because i was planning a uh i was writing a quiz for uh work um I needed to come up with some questions, so I was reading the the FT magazine um, uh, quiz uh, to 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 get a few questions and answers, and one of them was, um, uh, well, I can't give it away now. <laughs> well, can you give you us the question? The oh, okay. Oh, the question was: What movie ends oh. with the okay. line? <laughs> oh,
0: okay, fair point. Fair point. We maybe can't give. And that that away. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah so as soon as soon as yeah yeah so I, I i had um i had not looked at the answer to the question but i knew the answer <laughs> as i was watching the movie um, um i definitely
0: i definitely recommend people watch it i love that Sorry. you got bader meinhoft as well yeah and i'll make it three for three on that one as well uh on the purposes agreement as well i will um, hardly recommend this really enjoyed it it's a fantastic performance um it's an interesting film it's full of interesting ideas it's beautifully constructed incredibly tense and does some wonderful stuff with genre as we kind of discussed already um, alright if you are in the UK and Ireland you can rent it on Amazon on YouTube on Google Play and on iTunes if you are in the States you can stream it on the on the subscription service uh, IndieFlix or you can rent it from all the places that I mentioned as well we hope you'll join us on the other side of the spoiler zone <laughs> 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 so, so Carl, what is White Heat about for you? So
2: I guess like we were kind of saying, I think very much about, for me, it's about where the gangster genre is at this point in time. And I think one of the interesting things to look at with gangster films is always like, how do they take the temperature of the time that they're made? You know, I think usually they reflect contemporary concerns in one way or another. So I suppose it comes at a very interesting time in terms of like globally, doesn't it? Because I think in 1949, you had like various things going on. You had, uh, you know, you had the Proclamation of the People's Republic of China, you had the Soviet Union testing the atomic bomb, stuff like that, you know. So there's something interesting about this film, which ends with this big explosion at the chemical factory, which comes along at this time of like nuclear tension. So I suppose the general point is it's a confused time. It's a time of fear, anxiety. And as I was kind of saying, the gangster genre at this time is really quite diffuse, you know, it's quite experimental. A lot of the conventions are kind of strained and inverted. and yeah, we've seen like the collision of film noir with gangster narratives a lot in the 1940s, and it's interesting, Darren, what you were saying about it as like a noir gangster film, because I'm kind of wondering if you could develop that a bit, because like there are some similarities, but there are also some differences, I think. I think someone like, I think Cagney's character, Cody Jarrett, I know he meets a fateful end, but He seems a lot more dynamic to me than a lot of the doomed men you get in the noir film, you know. So I think it has some of those aspects, but maybe not in full supply. Yeah. So maybe that's why it's such an interesting hybrid.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that there's a lot of elements of it that are kind of disparate, that and like where it's not fully one thing or the other. In terms of like the noir stuff, I was kind of thinking again that the fateful end, the kind of the sense of doom that pervades it as well. I think it's quite clear from early on that this is not going to be a movie that has a particularly happy ending in general. I don't know um, whether no matter who you're rooting for. Oh, okay. at
1: at, at the end, because I've. Played uh, Grand Theft Auto Five in San Andreas. I knew there was a chance that he could get out of this, even with six <laughs> wanted uh, stars. Um, you know, and the
0: police flocking to him as well. Yeah, and he, yeah. Had, he had a vantage point. They weren't going <laughs> to shoot near the gas containers. It was all going to be. It was all going to be rosy. I mean, yeah, even things like Verna kind of doing that whole sort of. uh You know, arguably the femme fatale. I mean, she does murder um a woman and gets away with it as well and kind of the sense in which kind of the law enforcement characters are largely you know although there is that nominal kind of gangster imposition of you know order the kind of censorship the Hayes code the breen office or like you know crime must not pay aspect there a lot of the the police kind of tend to feel like kind of empty suits almost and there's a sense in which you have this kind of sense of tragedy um around You have this kind of paradox uh, with the central character as well, this idea that he is at once this kind of hugely um, tragic figure. Cody Jarrett is this kind of figure who you feel and kind of pity for, a kind of a sense of, you know, he's very unfortunate, he's very tragic, he's down on his luck, everybody's betraying him, you know, he's suffering from a neurological condition. The film is quite explicit that, you know, he's inherited mental illness from his father, it affected his brother as well. And he's going off the deep end and he's going to collapse and cave into himself. While at the same time also portraying him not in the style that I would associate with kind of like 30s gangsters films. Where gangsters, you know, tend to be cool and hip and suave. He's just a vicious little street thug. Um, He's incredibly... Shut up! (laughs) He's established like immediately murdering two unarmed men because they happen to have overheard his name. Which again is something that we take for granted these days. I I thought a lot of like the the opening sequence from Heat... Um, where it's like, oh yeah, one of them recognized us, we're all in for Murder One, we might as well execute everybody involved. But there's just a real meanness to him that runs through the film, and it's established and kind of reinforced repeatedly over the course of the film as well. Like when he (laughs) he, he promises that he'll get a doctor for the new recruit who kind of got his face burnt off at the, uh, you know, at the train robbery and then proceeds to order another one of his men to go in and just shoot him in the face. Um, and kind of like, this is kind of your defining character beat, but I like that there's the sense. Well, he,
1: there's... he didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't kill him in cold blood. He warmed him up first uh, <laughs>
0: <That's>,
1: <laughs> with all that steam. That's very fair yeah <laughs> that
0: that is very fair and again that's, that's kind of one of those things that gets at that atomic anxiety that i think carl mentioned there that's kind of permeating the film and i think you're right that raoul walsh probably isn't a director that you would associate with these kind of commentaries on contemporary society um he he'd worked with cagney on, i think the roaring 20s and strawberry blonde as well walsh had a very long career as a director working within the studio system he's very highly regarded i haven't seen um any of his other films but he's apparently very highly regarded by people familiar with the cinema of the time um no Notably got his first big break playing, uh, working with um, Griffiths, uh, D.W. Griffiths. um, uh, Famously played John Wilkes Booth in Birth of a Nation um, as well. So uh, there's an interesting bit of tidbit in terms of Raoul Walsh. But in terms of that atomic anxiety there's this recurring motif of kind of heat and fire that runs through it. And obviously, white heat of the title. You mentioned the fact that everything literally blows up and you get a big mushroom cloud at the end. But even the opening sequence at the start, where he burns one of his colleagues with steam, and they discuss the, like how the burns apply to the flesh as well. The fact that how Cody talks about what what's happening inside his head is again defined in terms of temperature. The white heat of the title is how he describes a white-hot buzzsaw that's coming inside his skull as well. So I think that, you know, it's not too far to go and look and kind of see the shadow of, or the specter of the atomic bomb kind of looming over it. I think that Adrian Danks, who writes at Sensitive Cinema, has seen this as kind of a precursor to the atomic noir of the 1950s, films like, say, Kiss Me Deadly, for example, where there is that kind of sense of atomic anxiety and uncertainty that runs through it as well. And again, a lot of emphasis on fire and burning and the consequences of fire and burning on bodies as well. Again, notable that they want to rob a gas refiner at the end as well by sneaking inside a truck that's supposed to be transporting gas as well um, so yeah it's kind of it's interesting in, in that respect as well I think uh,
1: yeah it's the it's the kind of um as well wh- whether 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 I realized it um or not uh, perhaps sort of more um in the zeitgeist people don't realize these things about themselves until Darren the psychotherapist <laughs> is able to kind of sit their films down and uh and say um yeah did were your parents divorced or um, yeah, or, or uh, what what does what does the shark represent <laughs> yeah
0: um uh, well to be fair the film practically invites it there's a psycho it does it does right? no and i'm it, I'm, like they, I'm they talk I, about like how Cody's pathologized himself as well. And again, that's probably, I think, one of the big differences as well between, say, and again, you mentioned like film noir, but a difference between this and the earlier gangster films as well is that I mentioned earlier like my big issue with the film is that it often feels like a bunch of stuff happening like if you sit somebody down and you describe the plot of White Heat to them without just saying well it's about a gangster named Cody Jarrett you have to go well it's about a train robbery and then a bunch of gangsters go into hiding but then the gangster turns himself in and goes to prison for a crime that he didn't actually commit so it's a shorter sentence but then he the gang basically one of the members of his gang murders his mother so he has to break out of prison but then he organizes a robbery of an oil refinery and then it all blows up which is kind of like a sense of there's at least three or four uh, clauses too many there.
2: Yeah, well, that's what that's one of the interesting things with this particular film when it comes in history is that, yeah, you're right, Darren, and it's almost like after an hour and fifteen minutes, it's almost threatening to evolve into a heist film, isn't it? But it doesn't quite yeah. do what do what a heist film would because, um, but I think it's interesting. I think heist films developed out of the gangster film amongst other influences, and uh, but there are lots of in, lots of like predecessors for the heist. You know, films that have some of the features of the heist film, they don't necessarily shape them in the way you would expect in later films. But um, yeah, I mean, this is just about a year or so before the Asphalt Jungle, which is often said to be like the first heist film. And I think the difference is that in White Heat, the narrative is centred on the criminals, not the robbery, isn't it? You know, like I say, it's about an hour and a quarter in when it comes up. We're not really interested in the crew as such. It's much more about Cagney as an individual or Jarrett as an individual. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. Like the planning of the, that job at the end and the timing of it becomes quite important. It's not developed as like a set piece in the way that like a heist film would. Yeah. But part of that, I like that. I think Walsh is somebody, he doesn't necessarily linger on stuff. He was very effective at telling stories in a very muscular fashion, I think. Mm. But I think to some degree, the film kind of hints at the possibilities of like the heist narrative and H- Walsh did another gangster film, High Sierra, which is somewhat similar too. there's a robbery in that where you know, you get the, um, insert shot of the plans and that kind of thing but it's not a full-blown heist so yeah that's another kind of genre or sub-genre we could kind of throw into the mix with this one I think
1: yeah I, I um rule has a very uh R- watch has has a very sorry R- he's my friend um <laughs> uh he he has, has a very efficient way of 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 telling a story um like the phone phone call, somebody picks it up, exp- explains everything that's happened <laughs> <laughs> for the last fifteen minutes, in in like about three or four seconds. And he's like, "Oh, I thought so." Um, yeah, <laughs> um, and, um, I kind of I kind of enjoyed that. I I think Darren is right the the point about the um, about how um, how wooden the um, Evans is. I guess. I, now I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say the same thing about um, about Pardo, or um, sorry, uh, the, the 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 name of the. I think I have it written down Fallon. somewhere. Um, the the um yeah the um well pa- 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 Pardo is his undercover name anyway. Fallon. Uh, Fa- Fallon. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. You're right. Um, I thought he. I thought he was great. I thought Ev- Evans feels like one of those kind of. Not not. I I love old movies, but he's kind of one of those old movie actors that like yeah. um you, you 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 get sometimes, and there isn't the kind of sense of naturalism, but there's great hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Great yeah. hair
0: and authority. That that's like really all you need. Like he. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No charisma. He's learned
0: yeah. his lines, and he believes them. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could talk a bit more about that, that kind of, you know, the opposition between the authority, the T-men, they're called, aren't they? And uh, yeah. Jarrett and his gang. The Cause, Treasury Men. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's something interesting there. I think it's relatively conventional, isn't it? We've got this, you know, we've got this dichotomy between the outsiders, the criminals, and the, the authorities, the regular society figures. And I think that's something that's kind of baked into the genre, but it sort of changes over time. I think in a lot of the early films in the gangster uh, genre, That divide is very obvious. There's an underworld where the gangsters operate, you know, and it's separate from conventional society. They're in a speakeasy or they're in an underground cafe or something, you know, different spaces that you can't go into unless you're part of that world. And it's interesting. Over time, that gets murkier, you know, that kind of divide. I think the best example I can think of is probably something like The Godfather, where it seems like everybody's crooked in The Godfather the gangsters, the politicians, the businessmen, everybody they come into contact with, it seems like. So there's kind of a pivot that occurs somewhere along the line. But it's always interesting to see how that's kind of achieved in a gangster film. And I mean, these these criminals in Whiteheat, they really do stand apart, don't they? There's no real sentimental streak to them that I could see. They're in it for themselves totally. They don't care who they take down with them. Cody Jarrett's not someone you can rehabilitate, I don't think. He has to be stopped. He's got something of that kind of implacability of someone like the Terminator, I think. Just this relentless forward motion. It's like from one job to the next, from one hideaway to the next. When he needs to make a tactical retreat, there's no hesitation. You know, when he gets into prison, he starts planning his escape, you know. And I really like that aspect of the film, too.
0: Yeah, um, it is actually worth noting again that that's an interesting kind of contrast that you mentioned there in terms of, like, portraying Evans and kind of, Jan- and Jarrett and stuff like that, and the kind of, the, the fact that a lot of the movie does have, a lot of the performances in the movie outside of Cagney tend to fall into you know what Andrew described as that old style of film performance. And again it's quite stylized. I have a huge affection for it but it, it's something that you don't really see that often. And that's then very much contrasted with Cagney as Jared. And it's, it's that thing that you mentioned where he is propulsive. He is like a movie monster. At one stage uh, Verna remarks that you could shoot him and he wouldn't stop moving. At the climax of the movie you have the cops actually yeah. shooting him and remarking who's holding <laughs> him up? Um, He is literally unstoppable yeah. and implacable. But Cagney's performance is much more kind of naturalistic. It's much more what we'd associate with a modern movie star. It's much more charismatic. It's a greater sense of gravity. And again, it's not just Cagney, I would argue. It's the film itself. You know, as much as I, and again, complain in inverted commas, I love the fact that it does this as much (laughs) as Andrew does. I think it's great the movie just kind of goes for what it's going for and doesn't hesitate. It doesn't break a step. It just keeps moving forward, you know, with Jared, with Cody Jared as well. But like, what makes the film special and what anchors it and what allows it to get away with that style of and then plotting is the fact that you contrast the actual plotting with how much attention it plays to the characterization of Jared and again that level of psychology and like again Andrew kind of mentioned you know sitting the movie down on the couch and asking it to think about its mother and playing word association with it as well. But the film very consciously does that, like it repeatedly pathologises uh, Jared and again. Point of comparison with Psycho, not only does the film close with a character handily explaining the meaning of the final scene that you've just watched, he was on top of the world and he couldn't take it. Yeah, it's like, in case you didn't <laughs> get the subtext of this sequence. But I mean, you Such also Such a shame.
1: Have... <laughs> it's just like a few <laughs> seconds too long. <laughs> the, 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 the movie. I just want to see... Like, I just wanted to blow up and, 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 and like the and the credits to like obviously this this is one of those old movies where there's like they're not going to pay money for film to tell you who did the catering um <laughs> so so it just ends <laughs> immediately um but I, I i would have liked it to just kind of like end with that explosion um and not not do the 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 psycho thing of of kind of like undercutting the 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 movie with this um uh... Cody
0: Jarrett, he finally got to the top of the world and it blew right up in his face.
2: Yeah, like, like... literally. I think that's 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 kinda of what I'm talking about earlier when I said I always forget just how balanced this film is in terms of like the screen time it gives to the p the T the Man and so on. And I always think of this as a cagney vehicle, but There's nothing wrong with like John Archer or Edmund O'Brien as actors, but you're right, they just don't make the same kind of impression that Cagney does. So, in in a sense, does that make the film extremely immoral because he's so (laughs) such fun to watch, you know? Um, But no, Cagney's one of the great gangster stars. It's just, it is. He's very contemporary for his peers. It's that synthesis of like voice, body, and motion, I think. He looks the part, he sounds the part, and he moves very dynamically. And I think the importance of sound there. Is considerable because when the gangster film really took up, I mean, it was around for a long time. But when we're talking about these early '30s sound films, I think the the coming of sound meant that things like social class and ethnicity became big factors of gangster films. You know, they became much more about the immigrant experience and um, the way the gangsters talk. They have that snappy way of talking, don't they? It kind of enhances their working class credentials. It, it, I think it um, feels very believable
1: in this because, like, like because, it, like, like all of Cagney's. Movies uh, uh, from 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 what I've kind of you know got from 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 uh, seeing kind of bits and pieces of them is that it, um, and and a lot of these movies in general have that kind of that kind of fast talking, uh, uh, wi- yeah. wise cracking villain. But it, it I it made it it felt really true to me because of kind of the the character's mania, like that that yeah. that 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 is what it's like when you're kind of like. Um, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of uh, wired in that way.
2: Yeah, I think that kind of vernacular was kind of inspired by stuff like, you know, the Dashiell Hammett type hard old fiction. I think, I think that's part of where it came from. But yeah, the way the way it works, it seems to that's part of the boundary I was talking about between the quim- criminals and wider society. So it's kind of appropriate that Cagney's the one who really does that, and the other actors don't really, you know. Um, I think he just brings so much energy and. It's interesting because I think when I talk about voice, body and movement, he began as like a vaudeville hoofer, I think. He's in quite a few musicals, but there are also films where he just breaks out into a dance step kind of spontaneously. It's a very interesting type of acting to me. I mean, I think since the old star system crumbled, we've kind of moved away for the most part from people like Cagney, haven't we? We seem to value people who can really disappear into a role now, much more so than was the case previously anyway. But... There's great pleasure for me in seeing somebody as effective as Cagney do this kind of thing. I think the film was promoted at, at times with the tagline, All Cagney Breaks Loose. You know, <laughs> just this sense that he was a force of nature. Um, it always reminds me, there's a story about Stanley Kubrick. He he showed Steven Spielberg The Shining. Uh, and he kind of had to tease this out of Spielberg. Spielberg didn't go wild about the film on the first viewing. And Kubrick kind of quizzed him on it. And he said, ultimately boiled down to he felt Nicholson went over the top. And Kubrick said, The reason Nicholson's performance in The Shining is a great performance is the same reason why James Cagney's a great actor. And to me, I mean Spielberg stopped telling the story there, but to me that's about this sense of excess, you know, but it feels like a kind of controlled excess. And what the scene I'm thinking about is, for instance, that scene where he goes wild in the prison dining hall and just starts punching people out, you know? Oh, yeah. That feels he's like, like a, a great Cagney scene to me, yeah.
1: He's like a tank on, like, beast modes. <laughs> it feels like, like, if if if, if the other uh, villains had known, like, that that's what he's capable of, that would always be, like, something that they could pull out. Like, their little ace in the hole is like, well, we're surrounded, guys. <laughs>
0: Don't tell him his mother's dead. Um, tell him his
1: mother is dead, and he's going to take care of all those policemen.
2: Yeah, I love the way I love the way Ralph Walsh handles that scene. Though, where you get the kind of um the whispers along the row of prisoners, I think he manages to do stuff like that through the film, where it just builds in a little bit of tension, like that scene where there's the thing with the message on the mirror, uh, yeah. for instance. Um, the, the the photo of the wife yeah the photo of the wife's yeah. a good example and the where he sees the guy they're going for injections or something and there's the the guy who he who would have recognized him uh, and Creole. does recognize him later on later as well on, yeah. yeah i never feel like walsh protracts those or extends those moments beyond the point where it's sensible you know i feel it's handled with great clarity
0: yeah, yeah. and it very much kind of keeps the film ticking over as it goes as well and again that that sequence is remarkable again a wonderful acting and wonderful direction because you follow the, the line down as it goes and you see it coming back and there's this hesitance as if the people who are whispering this to him know that something very bad is going to happen when they tell him as well and again one of those you know lots of great behind the scenes kind of production stories about the film that was one of the most expensive scenes to shoot in the film apparently Jack Warner who had his own tumultuous relationship with Cagney and had his own tumultuous relationship with budget was like why are we hiring 300 extras for a scene with one line in it <laughs> (laughs) Um, But apparently they agreed that they could shoot it if they did it, you know, in the morning slot. So filming at 9am and done by noon, basically. But apparently Cagney told none of the extras that he was going to scream uh, like a little baby (laughs) uh, when when he did it. Um, Which is why when you look, if you watch their reactions, many of the extras reactions to that sequence are entirely genuine. Uh, Which is again, it's startling, and again, the physicality of it—it's just stunning to watch. And again, that—that's kind of why it feels like it's almost a transitional film because you have, you know, on the one hand, the recognizable old-fashioned kind of gangster stuff happening, but you also have what Cagney's doing, which is something that feels a lot rawer. You know, I'm not going to compare it to—you mentioned the kind of more naturalistic school of acting that we have now, although I think there's elements of that. I think
1: *The Shining* is a good comparison.
0: And, and again it's actually interesting you should mention jack nicholson there because obviously white heat was i believe one of burton's influences in making batman oh absolutely
1: like he the, yeah. w- w- watching that final scene <laughs> i did i just thought of of, of 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 him shouting down and says hey riley yeah. think of the future
0: because <laughs> <laughs> So they're even wearing the same leather jackets. The cops are wearing the same leather jackets as well during the chemical factory raid, um, which is remarkable in terms of kind of that sort of style as well. But again, it it's it's just this kind of, and it's notable that Cagney always thought of himself as a song and dance man, uh, which is interesting as kind of Carl described, he never really saw himself, even though he ended up playing these gangsters, he always saw himself first and foremost as a kind of song and dance man. Again, notable that his one competitive Oscar came from Yankee Doodle Dandy, uh, which was this kind of a song and dance movie, I recall, or I believe, yeah. uh, as opposed to a gangster film, which is what, ironically, he's retroactively most associated with. Um, and it's, it's, again, one of those interesting contrasts between the man you see on screen and the man behind the camera. Apparently, um, a very sensitive soul um he would actually he writes poetry although or he would write poetry um although i think in interviews he insisted shakespeare wrote poetry i write verses and what he would do is while he'd be filming scenes with uh, edmund o'brien um obviously they'd be doing these really intense takes be really gritty lots of shouting in his face lots of really intense really uncomfortable stuff but afterwards cagney would read him a poem that he'd written and be like do you like it is it good?" By the way, don't tell anybody about this, um, <laughs> which I kind of find highly adorable, um, highly, highly adorable. Yeah,
2: I think what you speak to there is an interest. He's a very interesting liminal case in some ways because one reason he's so fascinating is he's able to take reprehensible characters and make them so engaging in a film like this or in a film like The Public Enemy. So you get this sense, and he's such fun to watch. You get this sense that he's bad, but he's also good, you know, and that's kind of interesting in light of his Irish American heritage. I think. I think his father. Uh, it was of Irish descent, because it seems like Irish Americans at this point in time also had a kind of liminal status, you know, the outside of the Protestant kind of hegemony because of their Catholicism. But they've achieved some level of social mobility, you know, they're prominent Irish American politicians in New York, things like that. So Cagney's persona obviously kind of arguably it kind of reflects that kind of ambivalence. So it's interesting to go back earlier than this in the 30s, especially He's often that kind of ambiguous figure. Sometimes he's part of society, sometimes he's not. It varies from film to film, sometimes it changes within a film. He kind of moves from gangster roles to being on the other side of the law. You know, there are films like G-Men, and this is where the Hayes Code thing comes in, where he's he's on the right side, you know. Or in the war he, you know, he, he appears um, there's a film, The Fighting 69th, where he's this misfit who ultimately becomes this heroic figure. So I think what's so interesting about White Heat is it's is less that. It's less that he's a liminal figure now he's something society needs to contain and it's not really about the immigrant experience uh, anymore that's kind of been displaced in this film it's much more this oedipal thing isn't it or it's been relocated into into the psyche so i think that's what's really effective about this film is it it allows him to kind of blow up something that was kind of present in those earlier films this kind of pathology in those earlier films it was much less prominent you know here he's allowed to like really run with it and i think it works works tremendously.
0: Well, that's it exactly, because this is very much a kind of a tense psychological thriller, very consciously so. You quite literally have kind of the pathologizing of him, first of all, by the T-men, who like explain exactly how it works. It's like, oh, those headaches that he had, well, he used to fake them for attention, but now he really gets them. So he has like Munchausen syndrome as well. And they talk about how important his mother is, as if this is something that's in your treasury (laughs) dossier that you get on these criminals. And then later on, when he's in prison he's like taken up in a straitjacket and kind of analysed by and again literally pipe smoking (laughs) psychoanalysts very much kind of the Sigmund Freud school of kind of thought as well and again, even even later on, as well, you have that kind of closing line as well that seems to sum it all up It's very much along it's very much interested in his psychology and again how his head works and the interior of his head, and the way in which that kind of is unusual or abhorrent or kind of you know non conforming and again it's notable that he suffers from migraines and again, this is one of those things where you know dubious science is is fantastic from a cultural context uh, if not in terms <laughs> of like actual science. Uh, but apparently in 1945, there was a study done that suggested that the cause of migraines, this was uh, according to John Pierce, um uh, there sorry, there's a 1935 study that described migraines as, and I quote, a psychic mechanism of the migraine attack was tentatively postulated as a conflict between the desire to escape from the mother's influence and a compulsion not to leave her, which is uh, certainly adds a layer of context to this. I
1: get a lot of migraines see. Oh, and that that, that um, that, that isn't 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 a cure for migraines having sex? I'm not making that up. <laughs> like, I, not a cure, like you'll never have one again. But like, a, 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 it will get rid of a, the migraine that you're yeah, having at the moment. it's like one this. of those little pink migraine tablets. Um, yeah, so um.
0: I wonder what the 1935 study had to say about that, Andrew. Yeah, I
2: don't know what Freud would have to say about I, that. I know either. what the Breen Office would have had to say about it. I think. Um, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I mean, I think there's more to be said. We're talking about this divide between the police, uh, the authorities, and the, the gangsters and stuff. And I quite like. Well, it's interesting. I think the T-Men are shown as like extremely technologically advanced, aren't they? Um, it's one of the interesting things about gangster films is that th- there's some interesting implications because by necessity it seems like the authorities don't really seem to serve a preventive function you know like if they were able to stop a gangster becoming a gangster there'd be no story at the same time it's this interesting thing where like the conventions of Hollywood storytelling require that they're able to succeed at the end you know so I find it really charming yeah. in White heat you know that the team men have got all this stuff like the spectrograph, the fingerprints, all this filing the, the ABC the tracking devices methods. I,
0: back cars yeah, yeah the, the yeah the attention that the movie pays to things like full spectrum analysis yeah. and uh again the the abc method but even the transmitter radio and the idea of kind of uh, was a cross-referencing basically of kind of you know, coordinating the location, which is done in incredible depth. I love that they explain the idea of joining two lines (laughs) together to find a point with the amount of attention that they do. And it's great because you have like that juxtaposed with the sequences where Jarrett, who obviously isn't party to these discussions, obviously doesn't get the same level of attention to detail that the audience does. And he's like, uh, I don't know how the cops did it. And it's like, well, movie. Thank you for explaining the hard work and diligent police work that goes into law enforcement yeah. in our local. And I think doesn't
2: doesn't Verna say something like it's always um I what did she say I forgot sorry sorry.
1: Is it it's something along the lines of that there is always a rat
2: or um it's never like, the cops are a smart is what she says I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, it kind of adds to that sense, though, doesn't it? That they're up against somebody like they've got all this stuff at their disposal, but they're up against somebody who's more. Difficult to start, more insane than any other gangster they would have come across. And it's not even just the tech, I don't think. I think the team men seem quite competent in most respects. You know, they've got this elaborate scheme for tailing the cars, they find the burned gang member at the outset, they're able to successfully get Pardo undercover in the prison. So I, I quite like that. I think there's kind of an interesting battle of wits element to the film as well.
1: Pardo is so smooth. Um, re- he, he's he's great at thinking on his feet. Um he probably gave himself away by the worried look <laughs> that he gives Creel at the end. <laughs> he might might have um
2: kind of Could have played it a little cooler. Yeah, yeah. Just turning
0: half away immediately. It's like, did he see me? We're the only three people in this room. Maybe he didn't see
2: me. <laughs> yeah. Um I also it was interested in that Jarrah you know, he has this contingency plan. He knows that turning himself in is the most effective move on the chessboard at a certain point, doesn't he? And that in itself seemed to have an interesting implication to me because it seems like going to prison is just like no big deal, you know? And like when he decides to escape from prison, it's just very achievable, it seemed like, you know?
0: Just gonna wander out the front door. You just sort of like tuck yourself in the back. But there's there's plenty of real life
2: examples
1: of, of 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 that. Like for 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 proper criminals, yeah. Um, and no prison can hold them. You know, like we we recently, or maybe in the future. Watch Catch Me If You Can. Was that in the past or the future then? <laughs> um, and that
0: was a couple of weeks. Ago, uh, yeah,
1: weeks ago. yeah, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, but there there are all these examples of I suppose criminals that can kind of you know get get into prison and get out.
2: Um. All all like the gangsters in Goodfellas, where it seems like being in prison is actively pleasurable, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> exactly, and, it's and, club med basically. Yeah, in, yeah,
1: it's cl- in it's fact, vacation. his his prison no. friends are better than his, than his actual outside friends. friends. Yeah,
2: mm. apart from the guy who tries to kill um, him, I guess. But, yeah. yeah, apart from Parker. <laughs> um
0: Um, what i was about to say is just in terms of of that actually what i was wondering and this might be a bit of a stretch but i'm kind of in terms of and because andrew mentioned catch me if you can there as well like catch me if you can makes an argument that you know there's a sense in which the ground is shrinking out from under frank and that no matter how quick-witted frank is no matter how resourceful he is he will always end up getting caught the house always wins it's a mathematical certainty mathematical fact you know vegas that sort of stuff But I wonder if here, and again, part of it is obviously the fact that the Breen Code is there, and so the Hayes Code is there, and the Breen Office is there, and you have to have, you know, crime cannot possibly pay in a movie like this, so law and order have to prevail. But I do wonder if there is a kind of a sense in that juxtaposition of the incredibly organized, like, methodical, like, technologically advanced, sophisticated, moving with the times G-Men. And again, you know, you we mentioned the atomic bomb and stuff like that, but to Americans, there was a real sense of kind of technological progress coming forward out of the war. Everything was changing. The world was increasingly sophisticated. And you have that juxtaposed with the gangsters themselves who seem almost like throwbacks. And again, quite literally a throwback in the sense of this being a James Cagney gangster film, a fil- type of film he hadn't made since you know the start of the Second World War. I well, kind of like, if there's a...
1: No, I, I think this this movie... I don't feel like it, it it doesn't seem like a movie that believes in the kind of inevitability of things because things things thing, things seem to happen sort of um quite uh quite a lot by chance you know there's a lot there's there there's 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 a lot of kind of um um I suppose I, I suppose there 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 are a lot of um uh, cases where there are you know, huge coincidences <laughs> um, but 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 there there is a sense in which kind of um like obviously it is a necessity that uh cody gets away but there there there's, there's so there's often such random events that 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 yeah. that make that uh that make that so so um no i i i i feel i feel like he kind of gets back to where he was at the at the start of the movie towards the end of the movie like planning another heist
0: yeah but he ends up eventually dying it does, he ends up planning a heist with a government agent who's, you know, uh, been sent to infiltrate his organization, ends up being tracked by, you know, the feds, ends up on top of a giant exploding kind of tube, a circle of gas. By the way, those those things are cylindrical because you don't want force pressure on corners. Uh, That's why they're designed cylindrically, okay. which I kind of like. I, I was kind of wondering <laughs> about that. But uh, yeah, like you get the sense in which, you know, he's almost, I don't know, maybe, maybe, it is, maybe that is a bit of a stretch to say that he's kind of out of... Out of his element or kind of you know he's no longer there in the world because I think the the random structure of the film and again I love that I, I was like the thing that I don't like about the film is how random it is that's what holds it back from yeah. being great while also I'm constantly like but I also really like how random it is because again that feels like it reflects the psyche mm. of Cody Jarrett. Like, it feels like you are watching a movie that is not only about Cody Jarrett, but has been plotted by Cody Jarrett, in that he tends to have this kind of thought process, which tends to move erratically and turn on a dime, and is very temperamental, and subject to like, random and arbitrary kind of acts of, well, not necessarily arbitrary acts of violence. His violence tends to be methodical, but it tends to be...
2: It's kind of psyche seems to collapse in on itself a bit, doesn't it? In the sense that he starts talking to his mother after she died, and... He starts referring to himself in the yeah. third person uh, and stuff like that. But I think it's an interesting characterization, isn't it? Because there are elements that don't necessarily track with that. Like, it's mentioned on two occasions that he really likes strawberries, you know? And I think that's just a really interesting detail because, <laughs> like, what what associations do strawberries bring? It's like sweetness and nature, isn't it? It's not exactly all these other things we're kind of saying. So I don't know. I, I really like that.
1: It's a kind of arrested development sort of yeah, yeah. Uh, thing, I suppose. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think that's interesting, though, is that, like, I think the way Walsh handles it's fascinating because like the scene where Cagney sits on his mother's lap, you know, and I think that another director would have done that differently. We'd have got like a long shot or something or a full body shot and he handles it quite discreetly, I think. So it never really becomes kind of unintentionally comic or anything. I think they were working well in concert together, Walsh and Cagney. I think they both had this idea that they wanted to do a real like kind of psycho gangster. Um, So it seems like they were working kind of in harmony, you
0: know. It was. Well, it was one of the things when Cagney was shown the script, because again, Cagney, you know... As much as we love this movie, Cagney's kind of had a bit of back and forth in it. He likes it a great deal. He's always been very kind about Walsh and his co-stars and stuff like that. But he's also described the movie as just another cheap jack job and Cody as a cheapy one two three four kind of thing. When he was asked about what drew him to the script, he described it as a five-letter word beginning with M and ending with Y. Uh, but he did talk about how when he got the script and he wanted to do it, his suggestion was that they make the character truly psychotic. That was apparently his big pitch uh, for and a lot of the elements that you see like for example that scene where he sits in his mother's lap, that was apparently a Cagney idea and again he talks about like wanting to get away with it, whether or not they get away with it, whether they dare doing it whether they take a chance doing it, a gamble doing it and it kind of paying off as well because it's very much a transgressive sort of sequence because the gangster is this very masculine kind of archetype, this kind of strong macho man and again the film literally opens uh, with a train robbery which is one of those, it's not necessarily a gangster set piece so much as a Wild West set piece, a cowboy sort of thing. Apparently inspired by an actual robbery from 1923, October 1923, uh, the robbery of the Southern Pacific's Gold Special by the D'Altramont Brothers, which was known as the last Great Train Robbery, to give a sense of that kind of end of an epoch or end of an era there as well. They also killed four people during that robbery. Cody, at least, was a bit more efficient. Apparently, during the last Great Train Robbery, they blew up the contents of the mail car. Uh, rather than actually escaping with them um but there is this kind of sense in there of like having cody as this very macho very masculine archetype but the relationship with his mother And then through that, the relationship with Fallon, which becomes a surrogate for the relationship with his mother, kind of making the character a bit more ambiguous and kind of playing with that notion of kind of stereotypical masculinity we associate with gangster movies, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned there um, the comparison with the Western Outlaws, you know, because that's what's so interesting about the fact that this always gets discussed in relation to Cagney's other gangster films. But he normally plays a racketeer in things like The Public Enemy, on the roaring 20s, he's a racketeer, you know, bootlegging, and this is a different archetype, I think, the outlaw archetype, and the kind of history about that's kind of interesting, I think, if you'll, if you'll permit me to, uh, to delve into it. Um, That came about in the mid-30s, so it came a few years after things like Scarface and Little Caesar. It was kind of a response to a mix of things, like the Hayes office was under pressure, there was this real-world crime wave, and just this tendency Hollywood has to let genres evolve, you know, as, as dictated by box office success, so the outlaw is less interested in, like, the fruits of capitalism than the racketeer. So that, that's what comes through in this film, I think. He steals money, but he doesn't seem to enjoy it. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. It, it, Verna
0: says, like, money's yeah. just paper if you don't spend it, that I think ca- at That
2: kind point. of idea, yeah. yeah. He's got this, like, nomadic lifestyle. He's always moving. And I think when that archetype came about, that was sort of spoke to... I think it appealed to some of the undercurrents of the Depression era, you know. It's kind of different to the Western outlaw thing, though, I think, because gangsters... They sort of re- are in this more advanced civilization than the cowboy outlaws. So their misdeeds kind of take on a slightly different character, I think. But yeah, Jarrett's a good example of that kind of figure. Because yeah, it's just like, seems like to him, cars and money, they're just a means to an end, aren't they? He doesn't seem really interested in them as a signifier of social status. That's the big difference with like the public enemy type gangster, where it's all about the sharp suits, the hats, the cars, the, sh- the shiny shoes, that kind of thing, you know. Um but yeah, I think that speaks back to what we were saying about the police. The The outlaw figure had a useful function as the antagonist. You know, the policeman, you can make the protagonist. Part of an attempt to make sure they complied with the production code. Um, but it does sort of come along with that moralizing that you were kind of speaking about Darren, which, you know, isn't everybody's cup of tea, I yeah. suppose.
0: No, no, but I mean, I mean, and again, Jared is an absolutely kind of fascinating character. And again and this is kind of interesting when we talk about kind of genre mixing and stuff like that because I see watching this I saw more than a couple of shades of the horror movie in there and I mean it's most obvious with I think is it Zucky, the character who gets his face burnt off and ends up wrapped in bandages so as to evoke the invisible man but you have this constant and again the large part of this down to what you mentioned the inspiration of say the midwestern crime wave and stuff like yeah. that and the fact that it takes place in rural California as opposed to in Los Angeles proper itself or at least a lot of it does yeah. but you have these kind of big so. old gothic houses that are largely abandoned, they're in woods, there's wind, there's typically storms happening outside, which again is something I associate with horror movies. You have that sequence where Jared is wandering alone through the woods outside the house talking to his own yeah. mother. You have this recurring suggestion that he's a supernatural force of nature from people like Verna, but also from the FBI, where a sense of bullets won't actually stop him. I mean, I think it's, it's Matt Seller's Eitz has made the point that the sequence where he's on top of that kind of gas tank and when it's about to explode, you know, looks like something from James Wells Frankenstein where the monster itself is inside the burning sort of um, burning windmill And it's basically being besieged by the villagers below, the monster having to be vanquished. And there's a real sense of kind of horror, at least for me watching it, it felt like there was kind of an element of kind of horror to this, a kind of an unnatural element, a kind of uncanny element to it. Maybe that was a bit of a reach. No,
2: I I don't think it is. I've seen it compared. There's a book on gangsters by a guy called Jack Shadoyan, and he compares it, I think, to kind of like that, that ending, he compares it to King Kong, that kind of monster movie thing. Ah. And I can kind of see that. So yeah, no, I I don't think that's a reach at all. What do you think, Andrew?
1: No, I, I I I I do think that he's not. I mean, he's certainly a monster in the sense that he's not meant to be a person, but in 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 the way that I I I think what you uh, have mentioned, which is the 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 kind of lack of sort of uh, financial motivation, I guess, or or maybe kind of you know the 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 sort of um like there there, there 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 is there is something more um kind of monstrous about it. it this isn't like it doesn't feel very transactional he's more of a force of nature um yeah that that's um if there if there if there was no if there was no fence <laughs> he'd probably just steal the money anyway <laughs> um yeah um so yeah, no, I'd I'd i I'd, I'd agree. It's it it's um, it's and so sim, similar to similar to King Kong and other kind of monster movies, you d- you do sympathize with the the villain as well. Um, like you 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 do want um. You do find it tragic. Yeah. Although there is also a tragedy about Fallon, because. He, I, I mean, the, the nice thing about the movie is that he presumably
2: gets to go fishing <laughs> <laughs> um, at, Eventually. at the end. <laughs> the thing is, I, I mean, I can't say I'm ever actively rooting for Fallon to succeed. I don't know about you guys. I yeah. mean, in the real world, I would be without, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, uh, we need people like him to catch guys like Jarrett. But on film, it's not quite the same, is it? I mean... I think that's why the ending is so effective. Like, yes, he's been stopped in his tracks. Yes, he dies. But he also gets the last laugh, I think, which is good. So I think it's a good ending. I think it's a classic ending because it kind of fulfills that generic requirement of this, this kind of story, you know, as they had to do. But it manages to do it in a way that's incredibly memorable and satisfying, I think.
1: I was I was rooting for Fallon, uh, like, like not just because I liked him, but... but... Yeah but for a large part because of that scene with Evans yeah. where he's he's just like kind of, you know, <laughs> holding his coffee cup like, uh, yeah, I'm going to need you to do another stretch there. <laughs> 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 That'd
2: be great. But, <laughs> I, I didn't really understand what Fallon was motivated by in the specific sense. I get it in, that he's on the good side and stuff, but I think there's something interesting that like, Jarrett actually reveal I think he likes this. He actually Jarrett actually reveals something of himself to, to Pardo, doesn't he? And it it seems yeah. like Jarrett does have some kind of code, doesn't he? Because like just how horrified he is when he discovers that Mar was shot in the back and stuff like that. I don't know, I the film the film puts you on his side quite effectively because not in addition to being much more interested than Fallon, I think Jarrett's much more interesting than Ed as well. So when Ed tries to bump Jarrett off, I think we're on Jarrett's side, or I am at least, you know. When it means that when Jarrett kills Parker by shooting him through the trunk of the car, we can kind of understand where he's coming from by his standards, you know. I think <laughs> by 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 the code he lives Wait,
1: We're we're not certain that he killed Parker. <laughs> um, <it> is, uh, <laughs> he
0: did he did shoot rather high. Yeah, yeah. Par- he, his holes were Parker was high. Uh, he
1: was like, "Hey, how, how is it in there, Parker?" It's like, "Oh, it's a bit stuffy. Let me let me give you some air." And
0: I, <laughs> I, while eating a drumstick for food waste it would
1: be a different movie if he shot like three times and then you just hear parker say
2: thanks cody <laughs> and, and then obviously you need to shoot a few more times <laughs> um i was wondering what you guys thought about kind of the violence here because like we kind of said there were some contemporary critics who are a bit aghast at this brutality i mean the thing is the gangster films are only going to get more and more violent over time aren't they from this point on you know um it's obviously one of the most distinctive thing about this genre. Violence is kind of baked into it, of course, but I think the level to which that's possible is always kind of regulated by what society is going to allow. It means that they've yeah. become more and more violent, especially from, like, I suppose, Bonnie and Clyde onwards, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
0: There's nothing quite yeah. as intense as that Bonnie and Clyde sequence, to be fair. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, like, you, you, could, you could argue that's one of the ways the genre satisfies what the audience deeply desires on some level, you know. But I don't know
1: it certainly satisfies me i mean i don't know what's wrong with me but yeah i i i i really do enjoy this even even stuff like um uh Fallon's judo is is really enjoyable like i i um and, um even even cody kind of is admiring it he's he's like that's some real fancy wrestling you learn um and um no i i um i mean that I I don't I don't
2: well I'm certainly not alone yeah. in I don't know how edifying it is well, you, <laughs> you could argue that it kind of corresponds with society as a whole's becoming more cynical more pessimistic confused over time and the uptick in violence kind of speaks to that I suppose I don't know
1: yeah I mean I suppose it's something we could we kind of um, spoke about i guess in 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 catch me if you can the romance i guess of of crime as well um and even even though there's there's nothing really that glamorous aside from the arbitrary um uh sorry the 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 mandatory um kind of um stunningly beautiful women (laughs) i mean we we, we've, we've we've I I think we 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 recently watched another kind of an 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 old movie where um we we watched um oh sorry sorry I'm thinking the sorcerer but it it was the the original oh wages um, of fear yeah yeah wages of fear where 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 there's a whole lot of like really sweaty. kind of um grizzle looking guys and then like the most beautiful woman you've ever seen um and yeah yeah
0: sorry i don't know what my there is there is that's a good point to talk about verna actually probably, which is probably an interesting yeah verna's an interesting character in a number of ways she's allowed to be quite coarse which i found quite interesting so things like for example spitting out the gum before she kisses uh Mm. cody jarrett which is an interesting touch particularly in the take as well
1: i think that's a um I I think that's hinting more at a two fifty trope, which is drunk driving. <laughs> um,
0: so when they get stopped, definitely drunk
1: driving in this. And I was convinced that that was going to be some sort of source of tension, but that that um, that that was going to be kind of um, one of the things that would uh, frustrate their uh, their highest was that um, their their saloon driver is. Um,
2: very drunk, <laughs> um, but no, no. Um, also interesting that Verna introduced snoring, isn't it? You know, yes. It spe- speaks to exactly what you were saying, Darren, this coarseness. And I think, I think on the making of on the DVD for White Heat, I think there's one of the one of the talking heads says Walsh liked women like that who were kind of tough and you know. So it's interesting. The film doesn't do all the things you might think it would to kind of glamorize a life of crime, and I think that maybe extends to the way Werner is introduced as well.
0: But I mean, at the same time, Verna kind of largely gets away with absolutely everything. I mean, yeah. to be fair, she shoots Maw <laughs> in the back, but it's okay because Big Ed quite literally takes one for the team on that. The the Big Ed gets the ironic kind of structure. And again, this speaks to how the movie is kind of structured through Cody's point of view, because Big Ed gets an ironic death of being shot through his own back. Which, except it turns out he didn't actually shoot Maul in the back, but it doesn't matter because Cody thinks that he did. I do love the bit at the end where Verna's kind of dragged she out in front it. of the police. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing sequence because it lasts literally only 10 seconds. And she's like, if I can, mister, will you go easy on me? I'll tell him you'll let him get away because you don't want your guy hurt. He'll believe me. And then when he comes out, you can do what you want with him. I love that Phil takes all of a quarter of a second to go, no deal. Lock her up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, like that, that, that was, that was, that was a, uh, like, not, not the most simple of, of, of propositions, but <laughs> it doesn't not take very long to think yeah. of it. Um, yeah, he, I, I think maybe, maybe he had enough of, 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 of um, this case. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of people trying to wriggle out of it, like, like the, the, um, Cody's mom kind of, um, uh, uh, running rings around him and stuff. <laughs> He's like, um, "Get in that building so we can shoot you." <laughs> <laughs> Seems to kind of be, uh, would be kind of his preference. Yeah. I think as well. It it does it make sense that um, that that Verna is is so um, coarse to kind of does it play into and um, i wonder how you feel about this darren and i i'm certain that somebody must have written about this and that it's in your show notes somewhere that is there a gay subplot to this movie
0: yes this is interesting and again this is going to get something i've talked i was on uh, the movie palace of carl talking about gilda as well oh, yeah. so yes <laughs> yeah. gay subplots that are totally hetero and absolutely no homo, are a recurring motif in sort of a certain style of film noir. And there is most definitely a whole host of weird uh, pseudo-sexual stuff happening here, to be absolutely clear. Because obviously you have Ma Gerard herself, who is the only woman worth caring about in Cody's life. But then she's replaced by Fallon. And Fallon literally steps into the other role. But the mother role for Fallon... You know, isn't like being reassuring from a distance or coaxing him on. It's like gently massaging the back of his head as he's cradled over and kind of very tenderly holding him. And kind of like You joined... do not
1: disappoint there. <laughs> yeah, that...
0: <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. And kind of gently walking with him through the windswept woods of kind of like Los Angeles County, uh, together while they share stories <laughs> and kind of bond on a kind of like a, a very intimate, very personal level. They're Absolutely is. I. I there is, a ve- for at least for me, there is certainly a yeah. very strong homosexual-coded subplot going on here. And not only is it a homosexual sub- subplot, but homosexually coded through an Oedipal complex as well, which is like a threefer. The best kind! Yeah, it's like a threefer.
2: <laughs> well, I just wish I could produce Royal, Royal Walsh and put that to him, you know, and see what he said. It'd be interesting. Um, <laughs> I never really thought about that, to be honest. That's, that's fascinating. I, I did want to bring up Walsh again, because We kind of alluded to his status but he's a really interesting figure you know i think the sense i get is he wouldn't be one of those figures people put in the top tier of like old hollywood directors he doesn't necessarily get grouped in with like your hitchcocks and your john fords he's maybe in the next level down i think part of that it's really interesting to me he made so many films many of them are like really routine that to some extent it's not surprising he isn't always a household name you know but just the idea of it is fascinating to me the fact that he directed over 100 films in over in about half a century you know, like Darren. Last time we spoke, we spoke about the Aviator. We were talking about people like Scorsese and Eastwood as prolific, and we're talking about a film every two years in Scorsese's case, <laughs> a film every year in Eastwood's. But I really like these old old timers. You know, people like Walsh or Michael Curtiz, where sometimes you see years when they're coming out with three or four films. You know, I just love that kind of um, productivity. I suppose I think it's something very appealing about it.
0: There is, and I mean, it, it guarantees you'll probably hit a classic just by, yeah, like, awful, law yeah. of averages at some point, right? <laughs> um, and nobody will remember the bad ones. Yeah. No, no, it is. Again, it, it's one of those things that's remarkable about the studio system. And again, the studio system is something that is highly, highly, highly dodgy. And again, Cagney is quite right to be skeptical of that and to have been skeptical of that. And again, to have got into shouting matches with Warners about how his contract was being exploited. But there is something, and again, you see it in things, I think, I know that for the movie Palace, you you covered, say, Stan and Ollie, for oh, yeah. example. But you see that kind of like romantic kind of appeal of the studio system in things like the opening sequence of that, where you yeah. literally follow the camera through the studio lot and kind of the sense in which this is how movies used to be made. And I think that, yeah, you, know, you, you do tend to romanticize what is basically kind of, you know, a conveyor belt system um, that, okay. And we talked about this, I think, a little bit on The Wizard of Oz as well. Right. There is a tendency to romanticize kind of the trappings of a system that was very impersonal and, you know. Was prone to burnout and was very much, you know, detached from the individual. Uh, very factory setting, very kind of like top-down driven, very yeah. bottom line. As opposed to you know Hollywood now, which is clearly not at all any of those things, but you know somehow <laughs> yeah. even more so. Yeah,
1: Cag- Cagney never had a chance to to buy um, like castles in France that he would never visit, or spend thousands of dollars on on wine every month. <laughs> or, um, or, or, or buy dinosaur bones from from Mongolia that he then um, had to
0: return. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that he then had to return. He should have been paid fairly for uh, for, for, for 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 his labor. Well, to, like, be,
0: to be fair, the, to no, be, no, no, i I'm, i sorry. i I, I,
1: I, I do agree that he shouldn't be, be a, <laughs> a, a, a exploited by the studios. Absolutely. No, but no it, like To be it's, like Cagney It's funny a, thinking of kind of. In, in terms of like if one you, or the other if, yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Um, now to be fair to Cagney he did say like again and this kind of brings us back to it's not quite buying dinosaur skull level money but he was being interviewed <laughs> right. at some stage uh, in the 60s and it was like years later when I first heard that Steve McQueen was offered three million bucks for a picture I almost fainted he was a hell of an actor but three million bucks—that's nuts. Which is kind of amazing. You kind of wonder, like, what he would have made it if he lived if he made it to the '90s as well. But it's worth noting that, like, walking off from your studio contract apparently came to be known as doing a cagney in Hollywood speak. Um, which kind of was a sense of like how unusual it was for people to do that? Cagney being one of the most high-profile people to do that. He wasn't. He wasn't advocating for millions of dollars. I think he was just advocating for. A no, no, idea, no, just, no.
1: Guess, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm glad though, in a way, that he wasn't one of our kind of you know present set. Yes. Of, of, of these kind of the. the it makes
0: Cagney's Pussy Posse would be a very different <laughs> thing, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it it exactly. It it because what yeah, it's what makes film stars these days so kind of um uh I suppose difficult to to relate to and so kind of I guess open to parody yeah
2: they don't have that machine behind them though do they like the things I was talking about with Cagney as yeah. this kind of interesting figure for his ethnicity and stuff I think the Hollywood machine yeah. very much played that up and it's not quite the same now is it and um, they don't have like all the stylists they don't have the very carefully you know uh, doctored kind of publicity materials in the same way I know it still exists to some extent but yeah not quite the same. well they tend
0: to be outsourced to their own like pr teams yeah, basically yeah. it's the actors doing it for themselves rather than the studio arranging yeah. photo shoots i think or know? marriages or whatever yeah <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah, um,
2: yeah. no uh, no it's interesting what you say about Cagney is this figure though and yeah he's come come and gone from warner brothers he's got this interest in autonomy where to let him improvise and stuff like that because we talked about that interest in period of tension more broadly but it's an interesting time for the film industry, isn't it, this 1949? It's kind of in flux. You started to get these cracks in the edifice of the studio system. I think we've had things like the Paramount Decree uh, court ruling by this point, for example. You know, television is just starting to establish itself as a commercial force. Sorry. So. Sorry. Tell, tell, tell me about the,
1: the the Paramount Decree.
2: So this idea that the, the studios um, owned cinema chains so they could monopolize what went out, basically. And I think the the Paramount Mm. Decree led to that practice stopping. So it meant that it ended up meaning that far fewer films were produced. It had an effect on the gangster film, I think. I think gangster films in the 50s, they tend to be more kind of independent productions. They're not big studio pictures anymore. The studios aren't doing as much. But crime films were good for like B-movies because they could be made very cheaply and
0: often. Quickly and on standing sets. Black and
2: white, yeah, that kind of thing. So yeah, all that's kind of just starting to come into play, I think, at this point. So, again, Whiteheat's at the kind of crossroads of various sort of, um, you know, factors that are interesting in that regard. Um, I think that's why Ma's interesting, actually, because she's obviously inspired by Ma Barker. You know, we're talking about these 30s Primeway yes. figures, like the Dillingers, the Bunny and Clyde, Pretty Boy Fly, those kind of figures. But I think this is after World War II, so like that's kind of receding into the past, isn't it? That kind of thing. So it's like the reason for telling a gangster story at this point is completely different. Um,
0: yeah, I'm, all the influences it, are kind of old-fashioned. I mean, Cody himself was apparently based on Francis Crowley, yeah. who was a short-tempered and kind of like very short-sighted, very short-organising kind of individual, who killed cops and received a death sentence. His last words were send me love to my mother um, Is were apparently his last words as well. But yeah, there's this real sense of it being it drawing from references that even at the time would have been old news. I mean, your target audience, people sitting in the cinema, you know, the train the last great train robbery, Maul Gerard and, you know, Francis Crowley would be practically ancient history to them rather than something current, I think. I
2: think so. And that's why the gangster film is kind of motivated by these things that are going on in real life, you know, the Capones and that kind of thing, prohibition and whatever, crusading district attorneys and, and so on. And it's interesting that that's all kind of fading away, and it's it's used more for metaphors or allegories, but the structure remains very sturdy, you know, but it's, but it's adaptable. So I think we'll see more of that, won't we? I mean, someone like Coppola has been very open about the fact that The Godfather, in that film, he's using the Mafia as this metaphor for American society and, and stuff. So yte kind of interesting to me, because it's, it's removed from those historical concerns, but not as far removed as something like Bonnie and Clyde or The Godfather, you know, so those films actually tell period tales but yeah so like mar parker is not particularly topical at this point at the same time i imagine a lot of mar parker nostalgia hadn't really kicked in in the same way as it would you know 10 or 20 years later yeah you know, that kind of thing
1: yeah there there isn't there isn't a sense at all in which um this kind of crime is uh representative of the society yeah that it exists in it's a it's an aberration and a blight kind of on on, on an otherwise um you know their, their, um, functioning uh, society which 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 is a sort of an old-fashioned way of thinking of these things do you think that kind of criminals commit crimes and ordinary upstanding people don't which is not true <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it, it's uh like like it's it, so it it's nice in a way i suppose to 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 see a movie uh from this era where where there was maybe more of um i suppose trust um in, in, in certainly kind of like in the american kind of psyche yeah, perhaps. yeah. And less of an idea of this kind of corruption having taken root kind of throughout like obviously this long before Watergate um, and during maybe some one of some of the most optimistic kind of twenty years yeah. um in in America.
0: Yeah, because this is obviously right before the fifties, the era of prosperity and relative stability. You know, you've got like Eisenhower developing motorways and stuff like that. You've got infrastructure being built. You've got a huge amount of money coming in. You've got political social stability.
1: I think I think you built motorways all over Figueroa and One Ninety Eight. 198 in figueroa i tried to find it on a map and there's just a big san diego freeway there so you you can thank eisenhower for that maybe
0: (laughs) we're literally dismantling the end of this movie literally making (laughs) white heat impossible Uh, but yeah he
1: he did blow it up um
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea that yeah, it's like Chinatown. It's actually it's like like all Los Angeles kind of vaguely film noir adjacent films. It's really about yes. urban development. It's largely like the climax of the movie is largely about Cody blowing it up so that Eisenhower can build a freaking motorway through it. Um, literally like Toontown in oh, yeah. Sorry in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But no, I, I mean I think that there is something in there in terms of what what kind of Carl was saying about. And I mean, maybe this is just me looking at this and seeing it being more allegorical um, than I think you guys are, but I, I see it in terms of being an abstraction, in terms of being something like a... You know, dealing with these issues, and I don't know if, if Raúl Walsh would have like categorized in that sense. We kind of talked about that, but I think the presence of psychoanalysts in the yeah. movie kind of gives me free rein to kind of go <laughs> off on these tangents. But to be, you know, to look at kind of America where you had this kind of emergence from the Second yeah. World War and this kind of chaos that was going on. And it's notable again in terms of uh, more more, uh, more Gerard, who's kind of running the family. You have this idea of kind of women stepping into these leadership roles, which again would have happened during the Second World War. And again, huge you know, eventual development of feminism off the back of the fact that women were doing work because men were away now men happen to be away fighting wars rather than away in prison but you have even that kind of simmering through for example you have the idea that fallon himself has served in the war but you have the idea that you know that cody gerard himself is kind of this explosive idea of kind of american hyper masculinity you have the fear of the nuclear bomb well, the did, sorry did,
1: did, did fallon fight in the war or did Pardo fight in the war uh, uh,
0: okay, fair point. Because I, I think,
1: I think Fallon has has spent the war in prison. Fair point. Probably. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but Pardo has the the yeah. the. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but again, like, and again, you have this kind of sense of anxiety around these things and anxiety in a changing world I mean like even you mentioned this idea of kind of like it being a a film that's positioned in 1948 like the amount of attention the film pays the like the existence of the fence and the fact that like I mean Andrew joked that Cody would probably be doing this anyway even if he couldn't fence the money he'd probably be burning the money out back or something like that but the idea that the fence has kind of figured out that what he can do is he can take the money from the jobs over here take them over to Europe and basically wash them there kind of sell them off at a discount rate on the foreign exchange market
1: that's a Actually interesting because it's the only sense in which the movie is kind of um, maybe tipping its hat more at the kind of uh, or kind of Caplan, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, m- m- yeah, of yeah, where 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 the idea is that this person is masquerading as a civilian, <laughs> yeah. um, and that he's also kind of working in in. I think he says securities. Yeah. Um, so there, there's the idea that, that, that he, he is an establishment in finance, maybe, or um, some sort of um, in, in industrialist. And the difference between him and Jarrett isn't um, that they're, they're both criminals, but one of them conceals that he's a criminal and yeah. the other doesn't. Um, yeah. I guess which which is which is the old kind of like idea of the 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 difference between uh, criminals who
2: are criminals and criminals who are ordinary people is yeah. is yeah yeah I mean I don't think I don't think it's a stretch Darren to start reading this film in that kind of way that you were speaking of there because I think it's very often the case that gangster films uh, kind of take something that may be relevant or may not be directly relevant to what's going on in the real world but it often takes it to another dimension and it, it does graft on these allegories so yeah no i think that's that's a good way of looking at it i did have a good Raoul Walsh story i wanted to throw into the mix guys um go for it well from what i've read he was you know he's an interesting guy he's a very manly man you know a um, bit of an adventurer so i thought it's interesting that he managed to convince Pancho Villa to let him direct him and his troops in the 1910s you know Um, someone who was prone to telling a good story and even mythologizing himself. So there are some interesting stories about him flying around. Um, So there's the the one that he, when John Barrymore, the actor, died, (laughs) Raoul Walsh apparently carried Barrymore's corpse to Errol Flynn's house the day after Barrymore's death, propped uh, Barrymore's corpse up in a chair so that he could scare Flynn, you know. But it's one of those things, we just don't know (laughs) if that's true, but I don't know. Um <laughs> also things like apparently he was wined and dined by the Third Reich before the outset of World War Two. So he just sounds like ah. a fascinating figure, even if he's not that well known, he's not a household name necessarily. I think there has been a biography of him a few years ago. I think or- Orson Wells as well
1: was was um had had dinner with um uh with uh, with Hitler, mm. I think. Um He told he told a story on the Dick Cavett show about that. So the, the the Hitler Hitler was like kept busy with lots of um, the dinner with interesting
2: people. <laughs> um, that's it, really. I mean, he's just somebody. I think maybe that straightforwardness can be a difficult thing to appraise, can't it? In terms of his filmmaking, um, yeah. I think that's maybe maybe part of it. Like, easy to admire, perhaps a bit less easy to analyze. You know, but I think he's one of those figures. If you looked at his top six films or his top ten films, you'd think, wow, this guy's incredible. I think it's the fact when you go to like 109 films.
0: (laughs) But yeah, then then when you average it out, it's, it's kind of a... But I mean, you just hope that nobody's going to read beneath it. I think I think we're sort of reaching the end here. But before we do, is it worth kind of talking about the final sequence? Because again, this is one of those sequences where Andrew alluded to it there before we got into the spoiler zone. And something that's often discussed in the context of the film itself, which is that the most famous sequence in White Heat. Yeah. If people have heard about White Heat, if people have seen footage of White Heat, being honest, if you've looked at the thumbnail that we're probably going to use to get you to listen to this podcast <laughs> of White Heat, it has more than likely come from the final few minutes of the film. And again, it's kind of interesting that that has such an outsized impact on pop culture. Because again, I had not seen White Heat beforehand. I didn't have that much knowledge of it. But once it hit the climax, I was like, oh, yeah, that's this <laughs> what this film is. Uh, was I the only one who had that experience? Or, or Andrew, did you feel something similar?
1: Well, no, like I, um, it was a more recent um, thing. I think I spoke about the, the as, soo- as soon as he says, uh, um uh, top of the world, or as soon as his mother says "Top of the world," I I I knew that it was coming, and 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 it's certainly and and as we said as well, it's it's very significant kind of in 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 terms of kind of a reference as well because we, um, I think you know Darren that Batman is perhaps my favorite Batman movie, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, the kind of um. I suppose appreciating that that um having just seen this now that that's um that that was a, a very very much kind of like a, a crafted sort of as a reference or an homage to 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 WC's did, did um endear this movie all the more to me um so it 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 it, it, it is an it is an incredible climax
2: i think that... The thing about the ending, for me, is like we've talked about how how it's this weird hybrid, this film, of different things. It's like an outlaw film, it's a prototype heist film, it's a noir, but that ending takes it squarely back to me, to that kind of early 30s gangster film that Cagney first emerged with, you know, the kind of, the public enemy that he was in, or films like Little Caesar and Scarface that he wasn't in, but just this idea that these people are going to be brought down, you know, there's going to be this element of like classical tragedy, moral reckoning, but they get this kind of heroic status through their death, you know, and, yeah. and I think that's part of why it's extremely compelling because it's just a great kind of send-off for that character, isn't it? You know. Um, so yeah, I, I think I love that ending. I think it's one of the, the best aspects of the film. I think Howard Hawke said something once, which was to make a good film, you need three great scenes and no bad ones. And I think YT is probably an interesting example there. I think there were probably more than three great scenes here. But I think the greatest of them all is that final scene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really good stuff. I can't think of
1: any bad scenes
2: either.
0: Well, what about those um, final three seconds, Andrew?
1: Yeah, su- superfluous three seconds. They, <laughs> That's uh, fair.
2: <laughs> what what three seconds? <laughs> uh, just, just one th- what, one thing I wanted to add in though, just quickly, is um, there's a lot of like fun dialogue in this film you know i think verma says yeah. at one point that the radio is not working oh i love that line and i think Jarrett says back uh what do you want for it? unemployment insurance just <laughs> <laughs> that kind of patter is really fun I think.
1: yeah it's it's it's
2: it's brilliant the the, the
1: um the, the lines kind of in 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 uh between them i think i sorry i'm just kind of looking um oh yeah yeah um i liked um i like your taylor how do you like mine <laughs> when he when he has them dressed up in the in the um in the in the in the in the jail outfits um uh, which is great and and the, you wouldn't kill me in cold blood will you um no i'll let you warm up a little <laughs> and he did he, he did warm up a little as well yeah because because he was uh, stuck in that stuffy trunk um, so it's true. true Cody true is a to true his hero. Yeah, true Did hero. Did you like the, the David Lynch reference? Uh, Ooh. Darren. Ooh, I'm curious. Uh, big Ed! <laughs> <laughs>
0: Actually, yeah, I can kind of imagine him dressed in that suit as well, actually, because all his ideas are so big, um, which feels like Big Ed should probably take exception to that much earlier than he does. It feels like <laughs> I feel like Big Ed really kind of puts up with a lot from that gang. I do also yeah. like that more Ma- uh, more Gerard takes her share as well. You notice oh, yeah. when they're divvying up and it's like. Don't worry, Cody's going to get his share. That just means that Ma has two big piles of money in front of her on the table, which is a lovely touch as well. And I kind of, I'm not sure if I admire or I'm slightly daunted by how like ridiculously unsubtle Big Ed and Verna are in terms of like their, you know, we are now bonking now that my husband's <laughs> yeah. in prison, uh, right in front of that kind of, that wonderful shot of Maul peering through the window, um, like something from a Hitchcock film as well, or like the Wicked Witch of the West. I love those sequences, those rear projected sequences of her driving as well, which are kind of, again, surreal because they're very tense chase sequences. But again, it's Ma Gerard. So she looks like she's, you know, she's this woman at the age of 60 with a pack of strawberries. So something kind of just slightly incongruous about it. She is
1: terrific. I I, yeah. I was thinking when I saw the, the, um, the kind of opening credits that oh, these, these are all mixed. These are all Irish people, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, which literally, which is, uh, is English. I think which I I kind of looked it up. It's a, Although we have uh, plenty of witcherleys in Ireland, it's a, it's a name from uh, Shropshire. Um, yeah. um, and I, I had the sense watching it that she was uh, Irish-American, but she's not. But presumably O'Brien is. <laughs> um, and Cagney
0: certainly is as
1: well. Yeah, well, Cagney's
0: um, from Leitrim, actually. Um, the, the family originates in Leitrim, actually, which is just oh, not really? too far from us as well. Um, yeah, yeah. An interesting like ourselves close enough just across the border but there
1: they, he's probably one of the last people from Leitrim, because there's there's no maternity hospital there anymore that's a fair point i mean my yeah. my, my my mother is from Leitrim, but she wasn't born in Leitrim, <laughs> um <laughs> because nobody's born in Leitrim. Um,
0: but yes and then also worth noting in terms of edmund o'brien as well he was apparently promised he would be billed as a co-lead on the film um this is an interesting story. He was apparently billed, told that he would be billed as a co-lead on the film to Cagney, uh, but he wasn't. And the reason that Warner Brothers justified reneging on that promise to him was because apparently he'd starred with Cagney in some films from the 30s, and Warners were very worried that if people saw Cagney and O'Brien's names together on the poster, they'd assume that they were just reissuing those old movies. ah. Uh. Uh. But apparently O'Brien was totally not cool with that. He was very very disappointed with I that. I wouldn't be
1: either. I I, I think he did a, ter- a terrific job in this. And what is a gay love story without a gay lover? <laughs> <laughs> um...
0: That's a very fair point, Andrew. Uh, very quickly, in yeah. terms of 250 tropes, lots of inappropriate smoking, because this is, of course, a classic like, 1940s film noir. I kind of love the sequence where Phil is like reading, the, he's, like reading the documentation with just a cigarette holder in his hand. It's just so casual. Inappropriate smoking in terms of the cigarettes that help give away the identity of the gang, the most literal form of inappropriate smoking. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Cody Gerard himself ends the movie very inappropriately smoking. Uh, as it were, because <laughs> he goes That's up. That's right, in, in, and there, yeah.
1: there's 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 also food waste with the with the with the drumstick, yeah, with the drumstick and the beans,
0: um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose the chewing gum. We don't know whether or not Verna was done with the chewing gum as well at that point, either.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah, and it, like it's just a lesson to young filmmakers: <laughs> do not make. Movie without inappropriate smoking and food waste in them, because you like how how can you be truly be a great movie with, with, without these
0: elements? Yeah, those are the elements that really unite the. Have you ever
1: listened back to old episodes of our podcast? I listened to an early one, and we just kind of like uh, um, like the f- first time we mentioned these things that then just become the, these. <laughs> Um, arbitrary in
2: jokes it's great I love Um, it
0: (laughs) alright then I think that about wraps it up unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about anything that we haven't discussed already with regards
2: the the only thing I was going to say was I think that in addition to what you asked earlier Darren should people go and pause the podcast and stop this film uh, and watch this film sorry I think that people
0: somebody should stop this gangster (laughs) Somebody should.
2: (laughs) I think people should do a Raoul Walsh triple bill and they should watch um, The Roaring Twenties which is with Cagney and Humphrey Bogart which is 1939, I think, and that's more like racketeer, prohibition, that kind of thing. But again,
0: that's the one where he's a former soldier, yeah, isn't it? basically. It's it's, and he gets involved, and he gets in over his head, and realizes that maybe criminals aren't good business partners. That's
2: it exactly, and that also has a kind of swan song feel to the gangster genre to it as well. And then uh, High Sierra from '41 with Bogart, I think, is um, that's a great outlaw picture. It's more of a sympathetic outlaw character. Uh, you know, Bogart's character's got this very sentimental streak. It's one of the last, I think it was either released just after America's involvement into the war or just before, because the gangster film kind of disappears after, uh, you know, during the war, effectively. Um, and then finish off with White Heat, you know, I think that'd be a great kind of triple bill for people, you know. So I think let's give Raoul Walsh his, his due, you know, let's watch uh, some of his good films, I think.
1: I also, I also quite liked, um, I know it's a very small point, but I, I, I enjoyed the color. Given to the movie by Jerry, the bad lawyer, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 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 the prison scene, I thought there was a great um, kind of a scene stealing um, uh, performance well, by whoever that character actor was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um... And very quickly, actually, the train robbery at the start, um, which it looks very impressive. With the mattress. Yeah, it's a fantastic like introductory (laughs) sequence, but it's wonderful how excessive it all seems. The moment where they pull over the kind of like conductor, it's like, we need you to stop this train. Then they shoot him and just pull the cord anyway. Making me wonder why they needed the conductor in the first place. But even the the sequence where when they're trying to get on the train, you know, obviously you have Zuck, Zucky kind of climbs on the side, but you have um, Cody jumping on yeah. top of the train.
1: Doesn't that just give a signal to somebody to 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 stop the 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 train, yeah. like um, the as in the little cord that you pull? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Presumably they, they
2: they they had all those eventualities kind of. Uh, uh, map uh, triple
0: redundancy yeah yeah
2: <laughs> i also enjoyed the lip reader character i thought that was a nice touch yeah and the fact that, yeah. that again that generated a bit of nice tension in that scene where his fake wife comes to see him and they have to kind of have this clandestine conversation you know so i just thought i'd mention that because i don't think the lip reader has been brought up before in this podcast so yeah
0: And you have that kind of wonderful sequence back and forth as well later on that kind of juxtaposed with that, where, you know, he's acting crazy, but then whispering about smuggling the gun (laughs) into him um, with with the sort of, with the straitjacket, which I also love as well. Very good. All right, then. I think that about wraps it up. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to give a recommendation to listeners. So something you're enjoying at the moment, something that listeners might enjoy. Andrew's eyes have gone horrendously wide. Um, So... (laughs) So to give Andrew a moment to think about that and to give Carl a moment to think about that, I'll break routine and I'll go first on this. I would recommend um, I recently myself and Andrew discussed the movie Sorcerer uh, with Tony Black, um, one of William Friedkin's kind of lost classics of the late 70s. And on that podcast, I happen to mention that To Live and Die in LA is probably my favorite Friedkin film. And off the back of that, I ordered myself the Anchor Blu-ray edition because apparently it's not available to stream anywhere, which is quite disappointing. So I rewatched To Live and Die in LA and it is a masterpiece. It is fantastic. It is exactly as good as I remembered it. So I would wholeheartedly recommend that. Um, It's got a wonderful performance, a young performance from William. DeFoe going in there, William Peterson being a fantastically terrible 1980s policeman. It's got a Wang Chung soundtrack going on there. It's got all that sense <laughs> of moral ambiguity. It's got like that sun-drenched kind of vaguely scummy Los Angeles aesthetic running through there. The Secret Service doing both protecting the president and protecting the currency as well. I really, really, loved it. So if listeners haven't seen Delivered Dino or even if you have, it's worth seeing again. And I think it kind of connects nicely to this because it's, it's another sort of like grimy, yeah. crime, paranoid Los Angeles sort of film. But then, um, Andrew or Carl, what would you recommend?
2: Well, as it's Independence Day, uh, I'll tell you what I've been enjoying recently is I've really been enjoying the Rocky franchise. Um, I've been watching those films with my son, who's 12. I had never seen the Rocky sequels. I had seen Rocky, I had seen Rocky Balboa, and I'd seen Creed 1 and 2. So I've I've just seen Rocky 2, 3, 4, and 5 for the first time. And I've come to the realization, you know, I really like Sylvester Stallone. I think there's something very likable about him. And I think he's much better than a lot of people give him credit for. I think the first Rocky is an American classic, but I really like Rocky 2 and 3 as well. And then, you know, Rocky 4 and 5 I was less sold on. But (laughs) I think... You
0: know, but say for the for the Independence Day, like Rocky Four would probably be the one you should bank on. That's true, I
2: suppose. That's true, but (laughs) I don't know. I think if you're in need of a good montage this Independence Day, I think the Rocky films are the place to go. So that's my recommendation.
0: And Andrew,
1: this isn't a very um, Independence Day recommendation, (laughs) and it's kind of apropos of nothing. But it's something that I'm enjoying at the moment. Is. I, I, Carl might be familiar with with, with with this character, um, uh, Fred Dibner. Um, uh, I, think so. I, yeah, I've just discovered the B- BBC archives. Um, I think I, I have no idea why YouTube knew that I'd enjoy this, but I do. He, he, he was an English steeplejack, <laughs> um, that the BBC made a documentary about and it's 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 a very it it's a it's an oscar winning documentary from i think it was 1979 um but it's 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 very funny it's very um it's very sort of sad in a way because it's a it's about a steeplejack who and i didn't know what a steeplejack was either um, Uh, It's it's generally somebody who who climbs tall buildings and and does repairs. But most of the work that he seems to be doing is taking down these uh, these chimneys in in Bolton, in Lancashire. Um, I guess maybe reflecting kind of um, a lot of the uh, closing of these sorts of um, uh, factories or kind of the, the... the onset of globalization and there's a real sense kind of as well in the YouTube comments that people are sad that it's not a um, in some ways that it's a that it's a a world that people have lost or um, or that there aren't really people like him um, uh, anymore. Um, But it's 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 a very um, it's very enjoyable it's very kind of um, i guess heartwarming but also kind of sad um yeah so yeah you can you can check that out on um i think the, like like you you can find it on youtube it's it's uh, it's bbc archive but it's uh it's available publicly
0: uh, all right then i think that about wraps it up but carl if people are looking for a bit more of you in their lives where can they find you and the movie uh, palace on well the i'm line?
2: online on twitter at Ckj Sweeney. Uh, the movie palace is online at Movie Palace Pod, and we've recently so, like I say, we've done a couple of gangster film episodes recently. If people are kind of in this home, also done episodes recently on Some Like It Hot, Rear Window, The Aviator. And if all goes to plan, and you know, we're recording during a pandemic and things might change, but just about to start a little mini series of episodes all about the Hitchcock Classic Psycho, which uh reaches its 60th anniversary this year. So, that's what's around the corner all being well if all goes to
0: plan cool um, for ourselves uh, next week we'll be joined we'll be continuing our season of looking at American classics we'll be joined by the wonderful Donald Clark and the fantastic John Maguire um, nice. to discuss 12 angry men uh, interestingly enough <laughs> yeah so there'll be four angry men discussing 12 angry men next week on the 250 um, take it easy guys we'll be back next week top of the world bye thanks
1: very much Carl. you. bye
0: cheers thank you
1: bye <laughs> yeah top of the world